this week on the Vergecast. A little bit of CES wrap-up, future of TVs, folding screens, all of it. We get into the browser wars. Microsoft has a new version of Edge out. And we talk about the future of streaming. NBC's Peacock launched literally while we were talking on the show. That's coming up on the Vergecast now. Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking. So why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Hello and welcome to Vergecast, the flagship podcast of the ever-growing Vox Media Empire. It does. It's uh Sun so never sets on it because the sun doesn't shine on the internet because That's the internet is a series of tubes that are underground. It went, it went a different place than I thought it was going, but I went there with you. I'm glad that we yeah. went there together. That's Dieter. Hi, Dieter. Hello. Paul Miller is here. Hello. Paul, it's been so long. It's good. You know what? It's good to be back. I missed you guys. I missed you too. And I, I'm Neil. I'm your friend. So we're back. It's been a million years. We went to Las Vegas, Dieter and I, for, my, it was my 11th year. What year, how many CSs have you been to, Dieter? 13. I'm too old for Vegas now, is the thing that I learned. My body just rejected it by the fourth day. It just wanted me to go home. Mm. Uh, and I did. And then it said, I'm still mad at you. And I, I was basically sick until yesterday. Uh, but it was at CS is always fun. It's always good to be with our team. It's always good to see all the people that we see at CS. The whole industry shows up. You just see people floating around that you haven't seen in a long time. It's great. Yep. I know a person who knows a person who came back from CES with dengue fever. That's <laughs> a lot. I don't know where in Vegas they went. But I, it's like at once I believe it. And it, too, it's like fantastic. But that's like the Las Vegas spirit. Anyway. Yeah. We haven't really talked, Paul, before we started the show, Paul was like, we haven't really talked about CS overall. Mm. Uh, we did one episode there. We did some interviews there. You're going to hear some interviews that I did with various executives come out over the next couple of weeks. I'm very stoked for AMD. Can you tease the AMD interview? I can tease the AMD interview. That one's coming out soon. So I interviewed uh, CEO of AMD, Dr. Lisa Su. I will tell you that she's just one of the smartest, funnest, coolest people I've ever talked to. Super sharp. Uh, very clear on what AMD's opportunity is and how mm. she's managing the company to hit that opportunity and compete with Intel. And very clear that, like, you know, AMD chips and laptops is a multi-year step-by-step process, and they're at year three, and they think that, you know, year four and year five, they're going to blow out. At year four and year five, they're going to, like, blow it out and make a big splash. Uh, we talked about AL and ML. We talked, you know, like, we just got into it, and she she just knows it all cold, and she mm-hmm. is also the CEO so she's thinking more strategically than, you know, I, every time I interview somebody like this, I like, I, like, I'm not a total chip nerd. So I go on Twitter and I'd say, hey, I'm going to interview this person. Send me some questions. And some people are, are great. They're like, when is um, AMD going to compete 
it, this product category within video, which is like a high level strategy question. Right. And then other people are like, I've got a 2010 gateway PC with missing driver support for this specific video card. Can you ask her about it? Like, I don't think she knows. Like she's the CEO. Like, so it's always that mix is always really interesting to me because it's a good mix of you know the people who are like interested in AMD as a company and strategy and people who are using the products. And I think finding that connection is just for me personally, an interviewer. Like that's my goal is to connect the CEO strategy to the experience of using the products. Uh, but a great conversation. I don't mean to hype it too much. It's going to come out really soon. I gotta say, I'm more hyped now. So <laughs> yeah, just put it out, Eli. Sometimes I talk to a CEO and I can't get there. Right, I can't get to that connection between how does your strategy affect what people use. And with her, it was like right away. It was instant. It was really good. Uh, anyway, so we, the CS stuff is coming out, but we haven't like kind of taken the step back. The show we did there with Ashley and Sean was like deeply in the weeds of stuff. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to like take a step back. Dieter, do you feel ready to take a step back from this experience? I do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have to step back in. I've taken so many steps back that I have already tried to wash it from my memory. Um, but, you know, I I think relatively famously at this point am not a CES hater. I try to take a more nuanced view of what goes on at this thing, um, that it's about showing off technologies, not necessarily showing off, like, the next hit product in a lot of cases. Um, I think that the dial was turned too far this year in terms of, like, let's show off concepts. Like, I love a concept if there's a reason for it or if there's a specific technology or a specific future that you are, like, touting. That's, like, what a concept car usually is. The concepts at CES, a lot of them are just, like, innovation will happen. It's, like, it's, I need, like, something more than just, like, we made a, we made a, a crazy car. I need something. Yeah. And there's, there's just too much, too much of that. So let's, let's just, like, kind of go category by category. I always say CS is a TV show. Mm-hmm. The concept car TVs that we saw at CS this year took two forms, I think. One was 8K, uh, and the other one was like, what if a TV looked like this? Uh, and yeah. whether that was like a piece of furniture or uh, a regular TV with a motor behind it, uh, it was like, what if we like make your rectangles different? And then yeah. what if the rectangles had more pixels in them? Like I would say those are the two categories. Can you give me like what a CEO's pitch for why 8K matters at all? Because I, I haven't really been paying much attention because like I, you know, we're so far from actual 4K high quality content in the living room that 8K matters. So I, I, I can give you the pitch I that you actually hit on something that I think is very much happening right at this second. But the pitch for why 8K matters is 4K hardware, displays, cameras, broadcast, all that stuff is very close to, in the case of the broadcast distribution stuff, like very close to commodity ready for wide-scale deployment. Hmm. The sets are already commodities, right? Like Mm -hmm. you spend $300, you agree to have some company you've never heard of track you for life, you can get a 4K TV. Mm -hmm. Um, Fine. So like... They're done there. So their forward investment is an 8K, right? Like they're sure. this is like now they're they're as close to commodity as you can kind of get. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll, it'll keep it'll keep going for a while, but by that point it'll be completely uninteresting. So now they're trying to boot up sort of the 8K cycle. And that's that is where their next set of investments going. That's where their next set of R and D is going. That's where, you know, when Fox Sports upgrades all of its cameras from 1080p to 4K. That's a lot of money to come in, and they're getting ready for like 4K to 8K. Yeah, like mm-hmm. that's that's that cycle that they're they're just way out in front of. 
For a consumer perspective, I think that part of the argument, which some have made explicitly and some have not, is um, that the processing power and their ability to do really good and interesting things with the picture means that you will actually want to turn on their magical upscaling algorithms because it will look better. Whatever you're watching will look better upscaled to 8K using their algorithms than it would just at a normal 4K and a normal 4K TV is like a thing that they aren't like out and out saying, but like here and there you kind of get the hint that they want to, but you Mm -hmm. know, we actually have to see it to judge that. I mean, I walked by a lot of AK TVs on the show floor, and I am very picky. And I think I, be- you know, I believe I can see it. I'm an audiophile; I can hear it. <laughs> Those cables just, sound real warm, and I could not see it. Like I just didn't buy it. Right in the wild, I have yet to see a 4K experience in any home that is any anywhere as close to as good as the 4K that I saw in like, I what trade show was I? I was probably IFA 2010 yeah. or 2011. You know, that 4K is better than the 4K that is in the home. My dude, we got a Mac Pro with a Pro Display XDR in the office. We've been, in addition to sometimes doing work on it, we've run a lot of 4K HDR video loops from YouTube on it. That looks really good. Yeah. Um, so come by and visit. You can look at that. But to get back to the thing that I said I disagree with you on, where 4K isn't ready, I actually think the TV industry is constantly hunting for an upgrade cycle. That's just mm-hmm. the, the way they're organized, even though now the TVs are computers and they do data collection and they have revenue bundles and all the other stuff that they've done to make your TV generate revenue over time. Mm-hmm. The industry is still organized around you're going to buy a new TV. That's the thing it wants you to do. Right. It's the Super Bowl. You're going to buy a new TV. It's President's Day. That's when everyone bought a new TV. Abe Lincoln bought a new TV every day on his birthday. Like, <laughs> that's just how they are. It's Black Friday. You need a new TV. Like, how many TVs can you get? Which I think this cycle should be variable refresh rate. And that's probably my, you know, my bias. Agree. Uh, that's not ready yet. It's not ready yet. It's here. It's in like, it's in some of them. But what is really happening is a convergence of the hardware being close to commodity. So the actual sets are close to commodity, especially sort of the mid-range. The high-end sets, the OLED sets, are getting smaller. The panels are getting easier to get. So you see more companies doing them, and their prices are still dropping. And then a shift to streaming where you can actually deliver the stuff. Like uh, The broadcast networks are not ready to deliver in 4K. The Super Bowl will be in 4K, but like only if you subscribe to one Dish Network plan that requires you to like stand outside your house with a whistle at 8 a.m. that will like <laughs> directly attune the saddle. It's like they're not ready. They're, they can do mm. it, but they're not quite ready. But if you have Netflix, you just get 4K HDR, right? Like Disney Plus, how do they drive a lot of people to Disney Plus? They said Star Wars is remastered in 4K HDR. So there's this drive on the streaming side to remaster the content because they know people will appreciate it. They will sign up for the services. And there's consumer behavior that's shifting to the services. And then there's hardware that can display it to you. That's kind of a series of coincidences, but I think it's actually driving an upgrade cycle. I do not know what part of the upgrade cycle 8K is going to get. Like, if you just, like, spin it out into the future, the Mm -hmm. first, or, I'm sorry, if you look at the, the history and then spin it out into the future, the... HD upgrade cycle was driven kind of by accident, by form factor. People wanted to get flat panel TVs, and they ended up with a 720p HD display because that's what they were. And then that just kept happening. But that was they just wanted smaller, thinner TVs to put in the world so they could get them. The 3D cycle didn't happen because no one 
gave a shit. The curve TV cycle didn't happen. Like they, they keep trying, but now mm-hmm. they're at a place where there's an abundance of content from streaming services. Consumer behavior is changing. You maybe don't want a bunch of boxes under your TV. It's easier to just go buy a Roku TV or whatever, and you can just get it, and it's like a big, beautiful 4K TV and uh, Mandalorians in 4K HDR, right? Like it's all just like waiting for you to 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 watch. 8K is like what's going to drive it. What what associated massive shift in consumer behavior is going to drive it? The way that I want a smaller, thinner TV, or I have cut the cord and now I have access to a library of content at higher resolution that seems really cool. 8K is going to need that. And I don't know where it is. I can't predict the future. Maybe something mm-hmm. will happen, but that's I would say that's the problem. I want it to be like like the wallpaper style TV that LG does just becomes commodified, and like people will want to get a TV that's so thin it just like they can just like tack it to their wall with double stick tape, you know? Yeah. I think that's that's a ways off, especially with 8K, which, you know, like if you walk up to some of these TVs, you're like, oh, this thing is beautiful. And then you like can just kind of sneak up to it and put your hand over on the side. And it's like, also, it could heat my room for the, through the winter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, um, I watched Samsung had the wall TV again, the, you know, yeah. the modular one. I was walking by it with somebody. And I was like, oh, they updated it. And they just looked at me and said, it's generating a lot less heat than last year. <laughs> Which one implies like last year you noticed the amount of heat, and then this year you noticed that it was less mm-hmm. right? because it was so much last year. So yeah, there, I think there's a way to go. I just 8K is the stuff they show off because they need to drive that that cycle. I think they're getting lucky with 4K HDR, and I honestly think the HDR side is more important than the 4K side. I would mm. rather watch 1080p HDR than 4K HDR or 4K SDR. Right. That's huh. not, I'm, I'm not mad at anybody trying to drive an upgrade cycle. I'm just like if 4K. Uh, for me, is visually better than 1080p, and I agree. HDR is really nice, uh, and and a good 1080p HDR is probably better than bad 4K. But a 4K is already like din- diminishing. Like you're not gonna get a lot more. Like 4K, you already see a ton of the film grain. Like 8K, you can see you can see compression artifacts better. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Look, 5G is gonna solve it all, Paul. That's the oh, uh, oh thank you. That's where five. See, I, I don't know if you've noticed it, but uh, 8K, 5G, and AI are gonna come together. Well, it is. It's, it's a, there's a lot of synergy there if you think about it. So <laughs> wait, can can I take you guys on a little tangent about 5G? Yes. I'm thinking about it. What is the show about? <laughs> well, because it, it kind of sparked the, the, you know, you you have your standing question of, you know, is 5G a race? And obviously for carriers, especially, you know, like country versus country 5G race. I don't know. That's probably a little silly. But the way I've been thinking about just recently is actually I listened to this podcast called um, Software Engineering Radio about this infrastructure as a service, like trying to. Like instead of the cloud where you spin up a virtual machine, like this is like the cloud, but you can spin up real hardware. And it sounds like their big client or something that they're working with a lot are mobile carriers who are deploying 5G. And something this guy said is that 10 years ago when uh, LTE was deployed, the cloud didn't really exist. But now the cloud is is a very well-known idea. So they, they, they deployed LTE in a way people did old timey computer things before the cloud. But now that the cloud is such a thing and now that the edge is so hot and they're doing this deployment, basically the the long and short of it is I think carriers view the 5G deployment, like specifically the physical hardware that they have to put out into the world to support 5G, not just the towers, but the, the back end of it is a chance to build the next AWS. Yes, I have sat at dinners with sure. every major carrier where they have given me that speech. 
And then I say things like, are you as good at AWS as Amazon? And they're like, well, of course we are. And I'm like, well, you run uh, yahoo.com, um, which does not suggest your software engineering <laughs> ability is very good. It's like that. Yeah. Well, and one of the reasons why it's it's a bit of a race is you have to be able to show that like, hey, you want to have your servers in our in our building because there's so much traffic coming through. So they kind of need the traffic to incentivize the people building on their infrastructure in a sense. Yeah, no, I, I think that's correct. And I, it's, a, it's a much bigger piece of the promised zero latency 5G experience than is ever really mentioned. Mm-hmm. Like 5G is going to have zero latency so doctors can do surgery with, you know, like whatever. Um, the cars won't have any latency. It is not, that is not so much a function of physics or speed of the network. That's a function of data being processed closer to you because data is being processed at the network level. That is very much the, I mean, I've heard it from every major carrier in some way or another. We're going to bring processing to the network level. We're going to do it locally. It's going to happen faster. We're not going to round trip to wherever AWS is. Hmm. I just think that carriers are less sincere than they often let on. Um, <laughs> that is, that's such a good way to put it. Uh, <laughs> it's as gently as I can say it. Uh, and I think they all are also interested in doing crazy carrier stuff, like uh, tagging all your packets so they can track you more effectively and build competitive ad solutions for Google and Facebook. Like, they want to do all that other stuff. Oh, but, but Neil, I, Verizon just launched a uh, new search engine that promises not to track you. I'm 100% certain that they have found another way to track you, and they want you to use that search engine so Google cannot. Yeah. Like, I, I just know how they think. Um, <laughs> so I actually I, I was with a... I would say, an infrastructure executive at CES. And I asked him if it was a race. And he was like, no. <laughs> I was like, well, you're the person who should say it's a race. Uh, and he's like, it's a, it's a national security race. It's a race against Huawei. Everyone needs American companies to win. Everyone needs companies like Verizon and Qualcomm to win. And then their preferred suppliers in Europe, like Ericsson, Siemens, to win so that the prices of their equipment drops and becomes cost competitive with Huawei so Huawei does not build all of the all of the 5G networks in the rest of the world this is like a big topic there was just a bill proposed this week we you know it was bipartisan it was like Ed Markey and Marco Rubio came together to start a 5G like a billion dollar 5G fund there's a rip and replace bill for the mid-sized carriers who have already deployed uh, Huawei gear to rip it out and replace it with other stuff that stuff, I, we, we don't know if it has traction. We didn't, like, cover it. It's just, like, there's that noise. And the more I ask people why what it's a race, it's a race kind of a, a fundamentally for Qualcomm to win, right, for Qualcomm and Ericsson and Siemens to beat Huawei so that their, their, you know, their corporate tentacles can define the 5G yeah. standards as opposed to yeah. Huawei's. Am, am I being tinfoil hat for every time I hear this? I was like, we want the NSA to spy on them, not the Chinese government. Yeah, you want to, you want the home team to be looking at you. Yeah. I don't think that's tinfoil hat at all. I think it, it, the more you talk to people, the more they would prefer that friendly interests are spying on Americans rather than hostile foreign interests, which is like, you know, I don't love it. But I, I get it. Right? Like I think it's hard to argue with that one. But I, Paul, you, look, you're gonna you're gonna get some Pringles cans. You're gonna do like your own private libertarian mesh network. I'll come visit right. you. 
incentivized through lightning. <laughs> uh, I think that for consumers, what all of this actually, what 5G means for consumers is um, you bought a phone in 2020. Like the the Qualcomm's, you know, the new the new high end chips from Qualcomm that just are going to have five G in it. Whether or not the network is there to actually give you much benefit from it, whether or not it's really any faster, whether or not you like manage to eke out a millimeter wave signal somewhere, or if you're just on like T Mobile's mid band or whatever, uh, it just means you bought a phone that uh, maybe has slightly faster data from time to time, um, and all of this other stuff is like not going to get resolved in 2020. Is my prediction. Yeah, you know, one of the things I I do at CS a lot um, is I I take a lot of meetings, sort of in my role as like a, a Vox Media person with a lot of Vox Media partners, and, and you know they always want me to talk about what am I seeing, what are the trends, blah blah. And I, this year, for the first year that I can ever remember, I was like, does anybody want me to talk about five G? And like the size of exhaustion that I heard, <laughs> we're just like out of control. They're like, no, we get it. It's going to change our business. Like, who mm. cares? And I think the industry has done so much to focus on it's a revolution to try to get people hyped into this massive capital expenditure that's going to be required. They haven't delivered a killer app. They haven't delivered a promise that's even slightly less esoteric than we're going to do faster computing at the edge with lower latency, which is like – not the most scintillating dinner conversation. <laughs> like, <laughs> like uh, thank you, Vergecast listeners, for paying attention to us. I just, it's not on par with like YouTube works on your phone, which was like the LTE promise. So I, I think there's a ways to go, but I, I'm I've come closer to realizing that what some people think the stakes of the race are, and I've come much closer to realizing that it's like Dieter said. What's going to happen is you're going to buy a new phone, and the network is going to get better around you, and you're like, oh, that phone's a little bit faster, and that's all. Truly, that's all that's going to happen. So we've talked about AK. We've talked about 5G. We obviously have to talk about AI so that we can hit the Foxconn trifecta. (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) I didn't see any AI. The the buzzword was dead at CES this year. Well, the the only place that tried to make uh, hay out of it was Neon, that weird Samsung division that was creating digital avatars that would talk to you. And it just flopped. Like Everyone just like saw it immediately through it. It was like, this is... This is awkward and bad and unfinished. And everybody else that talked about AI, they no longer expected you to, like, swoon when they said that their product uses AI. It's just like, our product has a microchip in it. Yeah. Okay. Right? I mean, the default answer now from, like, every reasonable tech journalist when you're like, my product has AI in it, like, everyone's like, how is it biased? (laughs) What bad data set did you feed your robot so it will do something horrible in the future? Uh, Which I think is a totally fair response, but I think it kind of... It dulled the the sharpness of the buzzword. Uh, we got to talk about folding screens. We got to talk about PCs. Uh, which one of those do you want to do first, Dieter? I think we can knock PCs up pretty quick. Um, I think that we are waiting to see what Intel's new chips really do in the real world. I don't think that we're going to ever see from Intel another, like, Haswell level, like, oh, my God, the battery life is twice as good now. Uh, but I think that we're going to see better improvements in their newest chips than we have in the past couple of years and be very interesting to see what happens with AMD on laptops. And Paul probably has more to say about this. But, like, I think that we're going to get just, like, a, a sort of fun, good old-fashioned, like, chip fight uh, specifically on performance and battery life on laptops. And, like, that'll be fun. Yeah, that was the story of the show for me, again, while I'm stoked about this AMD interview because AMD, I mean, to be fair, they haven't shipped it yet, so it, it it's hard to say, like, 
you know, AMD has been promising, well, AMD basically promised to compete with Intel again on performance and desktop. And they really, really, really have done that as of like right now. Uh, like they have price per price performance ratio. They're they're winning uh, in most cases on on like desktop, especially for ent enthusiasts. Especially if you like lots of cores. Um, now they're promising to be maybe competitive on laptops, which would be huge. And um, the weird place my mind went because AMD is so tied up in the next gen consoles. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm I'm sure you got the, there's this really cool. Um, Alienware concept of a PC uh, Nintendo Switch. I think it was one of your guys' best in shows. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. great. It looks really cool. The concept UFO. And it got me thinking, because I was like, when, you know, a a AMD keeps on, you know, innovating, just, you know, just working and getting better. AMD powers the PS4 and the Xbox One. When do I get like a, the, the PS2 Slim is one of my favorite hardware objects in the history of the world. It's just so beautiful. It's so small and it's exactly as powerful as a PS2. It's just way smaller. So when do you get one of those of a PS4 or Xbox One? And then I put myself in like the, if you're, if you're like a, a an executive at Microsoft or Sony, and you're thinking, what should we do next? Well, we'll definitely do a more powerful thing. But let's let's call up AMD. Like, hey, AMD, could we make a Nintendo Switch that is a PS4 or a Nintendo Switch that is an Xbox One? And then I got to think about the Xbox Series weird naming. Like, it's like <laughs> multiple things. And Microsoft's like, we're not going to have exclusives for the next gen because we, you know, we want stuff that scales across. I'm basically who is going to be the first to make the ultimate a non-switch Fortnite machine could have 5G if you think about it. 5G Fortnite Xbox handle handheld. AI AK display. <laughs> With AMD, obviously, you know, that, that, that's the thing. I don't quite know. Like, you know, the, the requirements would be a little less than an actual Xbox One because it'd be like a lower res display. I don't know if AMD is actually there yet. It might be like until next year. And also, I don't know all the strategy. Maybe you wouldn't want to cannibalize your holiday sales, having a portable up against your new next gen. But I think I would imagine both Microsoft and Sony are, are taking something like that pretty seriously right now. I mean, it makes sense for them to do it. I think, you know, they, they both also have a foot in game streaming, which is where 5G for all of its problems and promises mm -hmm. actually could make a difference, right? Like, Okay, we're gonna do X Cloud, but we're gonna run it on Verizon's network. That's gonna lower the latency. It's gonna stream at a high bandwidth to mobile devices. Why do we need a to put a scaled down Xbox One chip in a handheld? Like, right there, I think there's some mm -hmm. dependencies along the way there, um, or inflection points. But it's an interesting idea, and like certainly the fact that they've picked PC parts to sort of build off of means that they. They get the value back of whatever's happening on the PC side, right? The chips get smaller and more powerful. Process nodes get smaller. Like they get, they just get it for free in a way mm -hmm. that when they were building custom chips, they didn't. And mm -hmm. I think that's it, that's a cool outcome if they get there. I just think the whole five G streaming stuff, like they're investing in it because it's a hedge, and that mm -hmm. hedge might work out. Yeah, totally. Or it's Stadia. <laughs> Well, Stadia just announced that they're going to have 120 games next year. So, and ten of the ten of which I think are going to be exclusive. I still uh, can't get over the fact that I have Google Fiber in 
like Oakland, California, like across the way from like Google's data centers, presumably, and I still have got like you know weird glitches and, and down resing. And you have an Ethernet sometimes. cable from Sundar's house <laughs> directly <laughs> to your house and still glitches. Let's talk about folding screens for a minute. I don't think they're ready. I think that they're too like they're they're too uh, easily damaged. No, but the main thing that I. I make the folding screens made me think is, man, there was a lot of pressure on Microsoft to figure this out. We're all waiting for Windows 10X. And specifically, I'm also waiting for like Microsoft's uh, iteration of Android for the uh, Duo. Duo is a small one, right? And the Neo is a big one? Yes. Duo is a small one. Neo is the big one. Yep. It made me a little bit more hype for the Duo because even though it's not a proper folding screen, it will be a device where you don't have to worry about damaging the thing. The last thing I'll say, because I know you have a lot of thoughts about this, Nilay, is uh, I saw a Galaxy Fold in the wild in the hands of a person that was not a Samsung executive, and so did Sean O'Kane. Yeah. I mean, we were at CES. There was a lot yeah. of... I mean, I also saw a guy driving a, a, a Lamborghini with a wrap on it that said Mud Life. So, <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> like, I just... I don't, I don't think we should take Las Vegas seriously. <laughs> okay. I think it was like a, he was like a dirt bike company CEO. It was very confusing. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to talk about Microsoft in the next section, but I just saw Satya Nadella, and he was using the Surface Duo as his phone, and mm-hmm. I was so jealous. Mm-hmm. Like, you know that thing, like, you know, we're like in a big room, people are talking, and, you know, like some people are looking at their phone. Every time he did that, he, like, pulled out this super hot glossy white ultra thing he unfolded it and he was like doing it and then he was time for him to pay attention he would close it and i was like ah oh i want that real bad <laughs> yeah uh, my my read on it is that the technology to fold the screens is so close that people cannot help themselves they cannot yeah. help but imagine the new form factor even if the technology isn't quite there like they know what they want to build they're taking practice shots at it They've, they're, they're sort of collecting the market data around what works, what doesn't work, which way it should fold. We talked about this the last time we talked about folding screens. But th- at this CES, the, the shots were a little bit bolder. Everything mm-hmm. was a little bit closer. And like, it's just very obvious that the screen technology is not quite there. Everyone understands the problems. Everyone understands what it can and can't do. They're kind of doing it anyway, and they're doing it more aggressively in the hope that you know, Corning makes the glass. Yeah, has anybody hinted that someone's going to... Everyone's hinting about the glass. Really? It's just like the thing that everyone's like, it's going to be great when the glass is here. Dieter, I think you heard it a bunch of times too. Yeah, it's just, but they never say, oh, the glass is coming. They're always like, yeah, man, we just, all we need is glass. <sighs> it's like, you know, don't you? Yeah, they definitely know. No. Um, that company, Royale, that made the horrible Android phone, that folds. Yeah. Um, so, like, <laughs> so I, excited. I, this is like deep inside baseball of CES. <laughs> to get floor space at CES, you have to like buy it, right? Yeah. And then there are some spots that are more expensive than others. Real estate, like anything else. Mm-hmm. So, this company, which makes nothing as far as I can tell, has put out one Android phone to get its brand out there. Yep. They spent all of their money mm-hmm. to buy a spot directly in front of the doors to the LG booth. And then in, in that area, they just put every kind of folding display idea that anyone has ever had. 
Yeah. Right? They made a tree out of folding displays that would like wave in the wind. This is not even exaggerating. There was a folding display in a purse. There was a folding display on a top hat. A top on the hat. top hat. The top uh, hat's my favorite. It's just like, they're like, have you ever thought about a dehumidifier with a curved display over the front? We have produced one of those for some reason. And yeah. all of it is like, definitely in the hope that some LG executive walks mm. out of the door of their booth and they're like, oh, these guys figured out folding screens. <laughs> we should definitely buy this company. It was just the most obvious thing I've ever seen. But it's, I think it, the industry is there. Like, they figured out the hardware side at a level of confidence where they're ready to sell it to the executives of other companies at CES, mm-hmm. whether or not the glass works. I really want that top hat. I'm sad we didn't do a post about the top hat. It's a, it's a miss on my part. Are you um, are you like are you angling to turn into like the Monopoly man? What if I was a Monopoly man, but like I had the price of Bitcoin on my top hat all the time? Like, that'd be incredible. <laughs> what, top hats are the new fedora. We're what, here first. What one thing that did cross my mind looking at like these pictures of the of the X1, um, the ThinkPad X1 fold is. These are devices are thicker than non-folding display devices. And if folding displays teach us to love thickness because thickness gives us more functionality, then I'm totally into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, w- I watched Nadella use the Duo, which is just two LCDs that fold with a hinge. Yeah. But yeah. you could just I – mean, and obviously it was like an event for reporters. And he was definitely doing it on purpose. But just in that, you could see like – Oh, this is a different way of using a phone. He has a different relationship to this device, and it, when he unfolds it, it's actually thinner in some respects, and it, like, it feels different. Mm-hmm. I didn't actually like, see what he was doing on it. For all I know, it was a dummy unit. He was just like dramatically swiping for effect, but I, I think he – I was told it's actually his phone, so um, I, I suspect he was using it. But it just made me – it made me want that future. And to your point, Dieter, even though it's not an actual folding screen – they're they're ready to take the shots at it and they're ready to like invent that moment. I think it's pretty yeah. Okay, we gotta take a break. Let me actually speak of Microsoft. There's a lot of Microsoft to talk about. A lot. We'll, we'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Design for work. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. 
grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. All right, Dieter, let me, can I tell the audience a story about this, about your post today? Oh my God. Yes. But <laughs> this is my post yesterday on the day you're listening to this Friday. The post on Thursday. The post on Thursday about yeah, yeah. the browser wars are back. So most days, the editors of The Verge get together at the end of the day and talk about like, what happened? What do we got to write tomorrow? Like, we just have our editors meeting. And we sit down and we like, look at what the audience is interested in. And we're like, man, people really are really interested in Microsoft Edge, which is surprising. <laughs> like, yeah, just like on its face, like Microsoft made a web browser is, uh, that's a story from 1995. Like, I'm just going to be honest with you, but people are really, really interested in it because it's complicated. People are not necessarily happy with Chrome, like for a million reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Dieter and I have been talking about the ad tracking side, the cookie side. We've talked about Electron apps and why Microsoft, like on the show, we've done this forever. And I was like, yep. Dieter, you got you to gotta just write the browser war piece. And he's like, I, and he made the Dieter noise. I made the Dieter noise, and then I said, I can't write it in under 8,000 words because it's too much. Yeah. And Neil, I said, well, somebody else can write it shorter. And I was like, I can't let anybody else write it. <laughs> and then he did it anyway. <laughs> I definitely tried to make Tom Warren write a shorter version of this, and Dieter got mad and did it anyway. <laughs> and and the if you read it, the specific thing I did is I'm like, I want to write about all this other stuff, but I can't, so I'm not going to. I'm just going to say some other things <laughs> instead. All right. With that as the backstory, the browser wars are here. Yeah. Start with Edge and go from there. So Microsoft has officially released the Chromium version of Edge, which is built off Google's Chromium, but has all of Microsoft's stuff. So their bookmark syncing, Bing, blah, 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 their extension store, but you can still use Google's extension, whatever. And, you know, it works just as well as Chrome. And so we're going to be testing it for battery, testing it for all this other stuff. But... If you use Windows, your default browser now uh, can actually, like, render web pages again in a way that the old Edge couldn't because, uh, you know, web standards are broken and everyone codes to the browser now. Um, And so it's out. We need to see if it's, like, better for battery life than Chrome is because that's one of the big questions. Uh, But it also leads to just a million questions for Microsoft in terms of how are they going to set the rules for tracking differently than Chrome does? Uh, How deeply are they going to embed the Chromium engine into Windows 10 itself? Because there was a hot minute where, like, Edge was, like, going to be, like, the core rendering bits for a lot of parts of the OS in the same way it is for Chrome OS and lots of other operating systems. Half of Android is basically just Chrome rendering stuff. And so you, like, you can spin out a bunch of new features for Windows and for Microsoft based on the fact that they no longer have to spend cycles on making a browsing rendering engine. They have one in-house with their own stuff plugged in that is uh, very extensible and like has a big ecosystem around it. So they could uh, they could switch try to get people to switch away from Electron apps to progressive web apps. They could uh, say no, we still believe in the universal Windows platform, whatever it's called. Uh, so that there's more uncertainty and more opportunity for Windows, just more action than I've seen on the Mac in years. Really? Well, just there's not not necessarily. I mean, opportunity in terms of like moving the platform forward. The, like, what's next for the Mac? iPad apps are a huge bust. There's Swift UI, but that's not doing super hot. Uh, maybe they'll move it over to ARM at some point. But in terms of uh, let's take this desktop platform and move it into the future of the way computers are supposed to work, I think Microsoft has 
a few more. They, they've got more incentive because they don't have a mobile platform except for Android. <laughs> um, and they have just, uh, you know, like they've got more angles they could take. Now, that's a problem because then they're going to take them all and not do great at any of them probably. But uh, it's more fun to watch at least. So we we were joking on Twitter earlier today. Like you said, we always ask for competition. And then I think your your basic tone was, but not like this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because a competition is like sort of orthogonal to what consumers actually need or want. It's a lot of it is based on ad tracking. A lot of it is based on like default service lock-in. Kind of unpack that a little bit. So, man, when we think of the browser war, what we think is going to happen is like, all right, we're going to have Chrome and we're going to have Edge and we're going to have Mozilla and we're going to have Brave and we're going to have Vivaldi and we're going to have, you know, insert other browser here. And we're just going to find out which one is the best. What has the nicest features? What renders web pages fastest? What doesn't kill your computer with, you know, tons of tabs? We'll just do that. Um, but there's a little bit of parity there. And so the actual competition now is convincing consumers that uh, you want the data services that are associated with your browser, syncing it all up with Google or syncing it all up with Microsoft or whomever, or you want the privacy options that are offered. So uh, Apple Safari has a bunch of anti-fingerprinting, and it's using AI to block track trackers in certain cases. Mozilla is working off of a, a blacklist. Mozilla, by the way, uh, just had to lay off 70 people, uh, which is a huge bummer. Um, yeah. There's a hashtag for it. I think it's Mozilla Lifeboat. If you have a job in the web, please go look for these people. Um, and so we are now looking at this competition, but it's not a competition that a thing that a consumer can like do much with other than like do a bunch of research on trackers. Yeah. Which doesn't sound like super fun. Or like pick an ecosystem, which is... Or pick an ecosystem, which is like the actual thing that's happening. And the pick an ecosystem question... Again, you'd be like, okay, well, we're talking about desktops, and so you can just download the one that you like. But desktops are secondary, they're not the, not the most important computing platform anymore. They're phones, and phones are locked down. iPhone is literally locked down. You can't pick a different rendering engine. Apple won't let you. You can download another browser, but it's basically just a wrapper around Safari. And on Android, it's a little bit more open, but I don't think – I mean, I would, I would be happy to be – uh, convinced otherwise through some, some sort of data, but I strongly suspect that the vast majority of people are just using the default, and even with the browser ballot coming in the EU, that most people are just going to stick with Chrome because it's like, oh, it's Android, I want to use the one that's native. And so this whole discussion about the browser battle and which ecosystem you're going to pick and who protects your privacy and da-da-da-da-da-da-da ends up not leading to your ability to make a like conscious purchasing decision or browser choice. You can't go and like choose what browser you want because you're probably locked into whatever ecosystem you've got on your phone. Well, I mean, only to a certain extent. I mean, I, I have an iPhone and I run Chrome everywhere else. Yeah. I don't run Do you Chrome use Chrome on, on your iPhone. iPhone? I don't. No. Because, I mean, like, what if I click a link somewhere else? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what will happen? Oh, I definitely know what will happen. Apple will take over. I think a lot of people live at least with, have the experience of at least two rendering engines in their life, right? Like, you've got sort of WebKit, Safari on your mobile device, and you've got Chrome and Chromium on your laptop. And, like, right. that's as, as much competition as most people experience in terms of, like, yeah. fundamental computing infrastructure, but at least it's there. Like, I appreciate that. The thing that kills me, there was a... I don't know that we wrote it up, but there was a, a good piece in Boing Boing on Friday, I think, um, last week, um, that 
the DRM extensions that let things like Netflix work in the browser have now all but made it impossible for an indie browser company to exist because yep. the license for those extensions are so expensive and so hard to actually contractually get a hold of that it's even cementing more power into the big players. And that is like, do you want to live in a world with 10,000 indie browsers? I do. Does that prevent an immediate, obvious security problem in our age of like widespread data breaches and leaks? Like, there's a there's a half and half there. But mm-hmm. what is definitely happening is that the bigger players are getting more share. Nobody wants to let go of the browser because it's like a fundamental gateway to their services. And I'm at least happy to see Microsoft join the fight again in this way, even if. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of web people out there who are not pleased that the number of rendering engines is diminishing over time. Yep. The Dieter's like so much, he's so deeply ready to say so much more. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think we peaked people are most tracked ever in their browser and we are, are actually going to be getting better? Like, I feel like it's really pretty easy nowadays to get your browser to stop tracking you. Uh, it, it, as far as like, as far as I know, you know, like yeah, I, I uh, use Safari and with the default settings plus a, like an extension, I feel like pretty untracked. I, I broke most of Google fonts and I'm fine with that, <laughs> you know, like websites that use Google fonts, eh, they don't load because uh, I don't, I didn't want that. I didn't want that to happen to me. Uh, other than that, the web mostly works. That's the other big news is Google finally announced that they also, following Mozilla and then Apple, who followed Mozilla, uh, want to end support for third-party cookies. So that's like those are like the tracking cookies, right? And that is the source of a lot of the nightmare. And Apple uh, last year, last summer, basically followed Mozilla and put a stake in the ground and said, like, we think of tracking as security risk, and we are going to do everything we can to stop it and like bring bring it on, bring on the arms race. Uh, and so they have this intelligent tracking protection. They're trying to stop fingerprinting. Um, Google uh, says that this is bad because they're, you know, they, if you block all cookies and people will just use th- even more terrible things. So it's it's this fight where nobody is really giving each other the benefit of the doubt in some ways. So if you are on Google side, you're like, Apple hates the web. They just want everything in the app store. If you're on Apple side, you're like, Google hates uh, people. They just want everybody to be tracked because they make all their money on ads. If you're on Mozilla's side, you're like, uh, can we just have like an open web ecosystem where like lots of people can survive? That would be cool if we didn't just have two major companies run everything. How about that? Um, if you're Microsoft, you're like, can, you guys you guys like Azure? Azure's cool, right? Um <laughs> So this whole thing is like rolling out and uh, Google finally had to capitulate. Be like, yeah, no, we want to kill third-party cookies too. And so when that happens, like the ad ecosystem still needs some way to do some tracking. And so now the fight has gotten to the point of, well, what new technologies, what new APIs are we going to create to allow some form of limited tracking with informed consent from the user uh, and some way to ensure that, you know, like affiliate links work and, you know, web stuff with a little bit less creep. How do you build that technology in such a way that it's just like an open web standard and not just, you know, one or two big companies like become the gatekeepers for all of that? 
Um, that's a very hard problem. And the fight has gotten down to, I think there's one thing where Apple has a proposal where if you click a, a, an ad for to buy a, you know, a washing machine and then you go buy the washing machine, how does the washing machine website that know to give the affiliate credit back to this website that had the ad? Well, like, oh, well, we made this API. And so instead of a tracking cookie where they can track you forever, when you click the thing, your browser just hangs on to this like little bit of information of where it came from and it will tell the washing machine website that, okay, that's great. Um, and Google's like, yeah, that's cool. What if instead of like six bits of identifying information, there's 64? And it's like, well, <laughs> with 64 bits, you could basically identify a single person on the planet instead of just like a category <laughs> of people. And so they're fighting about that. Do they actually need the six bits? Like, like, I know they want the six bits, but do they even need those? Well, if you can come up with a proposal that makes sure that TheVerge.com gets some piece of money and uh, the wet washing machine website knows to pay it to TheVerge.com, please propose it. Please put it out on, Dieter, on the Dieter, please stop I, leaking I, our plans to cover washing machines. <laughs> I'm not, what are you doing? I'm not saying it's great, but there, was a there were ads before tracking. Yeah. You know? Well, actually, let me address that head on, Paul, because I think that's like a, a very common misconception, right? Like how ads work and how people get paid. Like traffic is not money. It just isn't anymore in that way. Like the number of computing transactions and then literal auction transactions that happen when you load a web page is out of control, right? So you load a web page and then within like one or two seconds, like 45 auctions happen on various ad servers in interlocked ways to display you an ad. And those auctions are basically based on tracking, right? Like I know that you, Paul Miller, you live in a house, you, you've got some books, um, you've got a yellow microphone, you're very likely to buy a book about a yellow microphone. Like we're, we're, someone is after that demo, they've got an ad for yellow microphones, they're going to pay a lot of money to put ads on a page that you see that someone else doesn't see. That is like so complicated and so based on tracking that right now what we have to do is unwind it. And when you say ads existed before tracking, the market for a small company to like actually spend their marketing dollars and get return from it didn't exist before. So like my, I keep joking about the fact that I buy like every wireless charger I see on Instagram. Like those companies are getting more value out of their marketing spend and they they're allowed to exist as companies that are selling products because they're targeting the ads. Like that's actually a value. I don't think that we can ignore it. I think what's happening here is we're over-tracking, we're not disclosing where the data is going, the data is leaking all over the place, we're tracking with 64 bits of information, you've got all of my location data, like, there's some, there's some level of boundary here where the, the tracking has enabled new markets, and it's, it's certainly enabled new businesses to spend their marketing dollars more effectively, but it has caused way more problems than I think that set of benefits. I mean, something we learned with the whole metadata thing is that if if you have six pieces of data on me and someone else has six pieces of data and then someone else has six pieces, then you, you do some sort of multiplication, like the, the cross-referencing, and now you know just as much as if, if, if you were Google and were tracking all 64 at once or whatever. So, so Paul, like the, the thing that you're expressing is the core of the argument right now. Uh, Apple and Mozilla are like, this is a crisis. And so we have to stop this right now and let the chips fall where they may. And if that hurts some businesses, so be it. 
protecting user privacy given the crisis of tracking is too important. So we're just we're locking it down and all of those people will figure figure something out. Life will find a way. And Google's like yeah, what if we just took it a little bit slower? It's a crisis. We'll do some stuff here and there, <laughs> but uh, let's like let's try and not like completely kneecap this ecosystem in this moment. Um, and you know, the truth on both sides is like not as extreme as I just stated, but that's that's basically the outlines of the like the browser battle from like the the cookie and advertising side. So it's it's like it's super tough as a consumer to like make that choice. You end up making your browser choice based on not thinking about just doing what the platform gives you or based on the reputation of the company. I trust Apple more than I trust Google or I trust Mozilla more than I trust any of them and I'm just going to use Firefox. Um, And that's just – that's a perfectly valid reason to make a technology choice. Um, You know, everyone has to take shortcuts. But it's it's interesting because historically – uh, for the, the life of computers, when we have talked about making a technology choice, we would just get to talk about, like, the quality of the product as, like, a user experience. Like, is yeah. it fast, right? Instead of, you know, if we're, if we're going to compare AMD versus Intel, imagine if the entire discussion was about, you know, which one of these companies has more tracking, you know, transistors, right? And, like, <laughs> where did the transistors go? That's that's basically what's happened here to the browser wars. Yeah, and I think what's the corollary to this the good part is that with the browser, we get to kind of have it in the open, yeah. right? It's like very easy for smart people to figure out what browsers are doing, what websites are doing, the interplay between them. It's not easy, but it's not hard. On your phone, there's no way to know. Facebook has built this entire business inside of its apps, and it is almost impossible to know what the hell is going on. Right? Well, and this also applies to like Apple's ad ecosystem, which is not big, don't get me wrong, but like how many of these rules and tracking rules apply to that? I don't know. And I don't know if that's because I'm dumb or what, but I trust Apple to like do the right thing. But with Facebook especially, there's just, there's a lot of that stuff that is web adjacent or using web technologies that's completely opaque. Yeah. And I yeah. and I say this again, like I think the sort of like Instagram story advertising marketplace has like pretty good qualities, right? I think People aren't super annoyed by Instagram story ads. They're not always great, but they're not like they're not as bad as the other advertising that you see on, on computers all over the place. They are effective, right? People know they're effective. You can target them really well. Like again, if you're looking for a dude to buy a wireless charger in New York City, you can like push all the buttons on the Instagram ad manager, and I guarantee you, I will see that ad. Right? Like that is a that is a useful loop for businesses to have. On the flip side, Facebook is like knows everything about me and they can do they can target so well that people believe that they're listening to them and that that's a, like a huge problem we should ban all trackers ban all targeting except for once a day every computing device has a red light that turns on and that means a microphone is listening and then you just talk about the shit you want to buy and that's how you get targeted <laughs> yeah instead on. of instead of your uh, your five minutes hate it's your five minutes commerce yeah, you, you just say the keywords that you're interested in for five minutes. I was thinking about this recently. You know, you, you can have an ad blocker on your computer, right? And you just reject traffic from known 
advertiser URLs. But what if you had a bot that accepted all that traffic and put it into a sinkhole and generated a profile of like, I'm a billionaire yacht owner who buys wireless chargers and I live in New York City. You know, <laughs> why do I have to get a bot to do that when I can do it myself? <laughs> right. Create the most <laughs> expensive possible ad profile for yourself so that when you do go to websites, not only do you not see the website, you're costing the advertiser. It's like an offensive approach to ad blocking. I like it. You should build, yeah. that's like, you know, there's that Helm server where you get to run your own email server. Mm. Well, you should reach yeah. out to that company. I've, I've got an idea to stop tracking even farther. It's a, it's a honeypot that costs everyone money. <laughs> <Ad> <laughs> Just like board. put that on your network. It's like a toggle switch. And like, you know, I block ads at the network level with my Eero. Mm-hmm. Um, I do it. I block ads and malware. I especially do it for my parents because yep. it is. Just like, please, please, internet, leave my parents alone. Um, but if you had a third switch that was like lie, <laughs> lie, lie expensively, it's a free idea for the Eero people. I hope they take me up on it. All right, we got to take a break. We'll be back to talk about some streaming stuff. Check this out. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, Paul Miller. It's been weeks. Oh yeah. I was. I'm just gonna say this based on the day that we're recording this. We haven't done this segment in like four weeks, and uh, the president's being impeached. We didn't hold the country together, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did the. Uh, what you mean? I'm sorry. You know Correlation what? I'm sorry. is causation, man. That's how it works. <laughs> I I did the segment uh, as like a pre-recorded for for CES. That's I forget true. Which day it was? Um, I talked about uh, Intel's GPU. But we didn't do it together. But now we're together. Now we can bring the really solve all <laughs> the world's problems. It's called if a Roomba had arms, who would it hug? Oh, so is it everyone? I hope it's everyone. Well, it's not everyone, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I just got okay. So there's this story from CES. The the apparently Roomba um, uh, is or iRobot, the company that makes Roombas, which also makes like military robots. Like it's a whole robotics company. They don't just make vacuum robots and apparently they're testing out arms on a Roomba and and they want Roomba to eventually help out with more complex tasks around like like any robotics company ever wants the same thing but they want the robot to help with like uh, laundry dishwashing food serving so that makes sense then they kind of walked it back like we don't really want to talk about future products and so who knows how many arms or what is really going on with Roomba and arms but I started thinking about it and who would Roomba hug? Does Roomba love you and your family and therefore destroys dirt? Or is Roomba just hungry for dirt? 
Does Roomba love dirt or does Roomba love you? I feel like the addition of arms does not answer that question <laughs> in any way. Like, you can't be like, I'm going to add arms to this Roomba and that will land us at the answer to whether it loves you or loves dirt. Like, I guess you just have to find out. Like, is it right now hugging dirt with its, with its vacuum functionality? Yeah. Right now what it's mostly doing is getting stuck in, like, the same stupid place every day, no matter how I set up the beacons. And you are so committed to your Roomba. <laughs> I buy Roombas and send them back all the time. <laughs> like once a year, I'm like, we should do a Roomba. And Becky's like, we're just going to send it back. And mm. then I'm like, no, I won't. This one has more beacons. It has a yeah. laser. It's got AI. Yeah. My suburbs uh, across the street neighbors have uh, a Roomba mower. It's pretty cool. Mm. That seems yeah. extraordinarily dangerous to me, just based on what I know of the <laughs> vacuums. All right. It's streaming time. There's a lot in the streaming wars going on. My new favorite trend in the streaming wars is uh, executives who are launching streaming services insisting that streaming wars is the, the wrong phrase. Yeah. They're like, people are going to subscribe to multiple streaming services, which I believe is true. I mm-hmm. think the answer is also that they will not subscribe to some streaming services, and those services will lose and die. Mm. That's why it's a, it's a mm. war, because of yeah. the casualties it will You could happen. call somebody who subscribes to both Netflix and Quibi a double agent. Yeah, that's mm. and when we sat down with Katzenberg, he was like, "They're double agents." So today, like as we speak right now at this moment, NBC uh, is holding the launch of Peacock in uh, the SNL studios. We invited a bunch of media to sit in the fancy SNL studios and hear about their new streaming services. I will disclose to you, for the one billionth time, NBC Universal is an investor in Vox Media, the parent company of The Verge. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, that's, that's some information you have now. I will follow up that information by saying their business model is to show you a lot of ads, and I think that's a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there, there's three tiers. There's 10 bucks a month for no ads. Okay. There's 5 bucks a month for ads. And then if you are, I think, a Comcast or a Co- uh, Cox Cable subscriber, you can get free access to the ads or 5 bucks off the ad-free version. That's not complicated at all. Okay, so if you have Comcast, it's 0 or 5 and if you don't have Comcast, it's it's five or ten. Yes. So one of the things I've heard a lot is you need to get people into the app, right? Like all these streaming services are now solving the same general challenges that I don't know photo management apps had a while ago, or whatever other category of apps has been hot. First of all, you need people to know what the hell it is. Yep. That's hard. It's a lot of marketing money. You need people to pick up their phone. Open the App Store, search for your app, and hit Get, which is a surprisingly like hard road to go up. Mm-hmm. You know, the average number of apps downloaded by the average person in an average month is zero. So that's like that's like one of my favorite stats. Like they got to cross that bridge. Uh, then they you got to download that app. Then you got to sign up for an account. Wait, average is zero. The average is zero. That's, um, is that rounding down or rounding? It's, up? Ra- it's obviously rounding down. How would you round up? If you uninstall a bunch of apps. Every, it would be actually great if most people in America uninstalled like half an app a day or something. Yeah. <laughs> That's a form uh, of self-care, uninstalled. Correction, yeah. there is a free tier with limited programming. Okay, also so, ads. so in a free, so there's like one tier that's just Olympics promos and ads for the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> you can do that okay. for free. Okay, this, this is the first thing that you, so you're talking about. You got to tell people about it, right? Yeah. Well, the Olympics happened... July 24th. Oh, yeah. And th- th- we're going to be inundated with Peacock ads around the Olympics. Peacock launches on... Fi- I mean, that's a that's pretty great rollout, don't you think? 
Yeah, no, and I think um, the Mandalorian and Star Wars did a lot for Disney Plus. I mean, Disney had like literally ESPN reporters were on air being like, "Today is the day that everything changes." Disney Plus, mm. like, <laughs> a, like Disney and ABC, like they use their muscle to get Disney Plus out in the world. But it's also full of like Disney movies and Star Wars and Marvel. Like, there's an element to the Disney Plus interface that is just its own marketing, right? That the top level nav of Disney Plus is. Disney, Pixar, Marvel, National Geographic. Like, I feel bad for that last box. It's like, it's the one that doesn't have a cinematic universe. It's just the actual universe. (laughs) (laughs) But like, at the top level, they've got all those franchises. They've got all those studios. They're just like doing it. NBC, Universal, like doesn't. Like, Peacock isn't going to have like that stuff. It's going to have a lot of shows. It's going to have its own interface. Again, this is happening as we speak, so I haven't even seen it yet. But it's launching. It's coming. And they're... Again, the pitch is we have a slightly different consumer proposition, which is you can pay less money to see some ads, right? And then obviously we'll have like the world of NBC content in it. I think that's like, that is to me the most interesting part about that is it is not the same as Netflix. Like Disney Plus is really offering you the same deal as Netflix. Pay us a bunch of money. Don't look at any ads. Watch the stuff you love, right? And that's like very much the Netflix model. Hulu has had that ad tier, and I think it's a very popular tier, and I think NBC is going after that zone because, I don't know if you know, like they divested out of Hulu with the Disney-Fox agreement. Yeah, so although Disney owns Hulu NBC now. shows still going to be available on Hulu till the licensing deals run out. Of uh, course. Just, it's going to be a fiasco. So that's Peacock. It's happening now. Julia's doing all the work. She's obviously... We'll have her on again soon to talk about that, probably next week, to talk about these streaming launches. And then next to it is HBO Max. And I just want to read, this is like the point we're at, where like all they can really sell is the content. Like they can't sell like the interface. They can't sell, like, you know, like TikTok is like, here's all these cool features. Here's like a cool filter. Instagram's yeah. like, here's all these like, uh, like roulette wheel filters that tell you what Marvel character you are. Like. These apps can't do that. They're just trying to get you to the content. So that the way they're talking about how cool and wonderful it'll be, this is an article in The Hollywood Reporter where HBO Max executives are, are talking about how great HBO Max is. Over the holidays, I'm just going to read the quote. Over the holidays, the exec told the room he tested out an early version of forthcoming streamer HBO Max. On his watch list was a combination of HBO's Watchmen, classic episodes of Friends, the Warner Brothers movie Full Metal Jacket, a Wonder Woman cartoon, and the documentary Andre the Giant. Quote, that was an amazing four hours of viewing that I did, and such a wide array of things at my fingertips. That is the most insane Mm. four hours of content I can think of. Like, you're like, oh, I just got to settle down from watching Watchmen by watching Full Metal Jacket, going to bracket that with some friends, and then hard shift into Andre the Giant. Like, what? Like, I couldn't be in that headspace at all. You, everybody needs to have a show that they save that is their unicorn chaser. So if you, if you're watching a show and it's dark and depressing and dour, you always need to be able to like, all right, I need, I got to watch one more thing that'll make me feel okay about life and the universe. And I'm going to watch just a real half hour of that and then I'll be done. So a chaser Um, in like the drinking sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I strongly recommend She-Ra on Netflix as this uh, uh, thing. It's great. By the way, I got this order wrong. It was Watchmen and then Friends and then yeah. Full Metal Jacket. Oh, which in terms TikTok-ing. of just jarring shifts between Watchmen needs needs a unicorn chaser. Friends, Full Metal Jacket needs a unicorn <laughs> chaser. 
uh, Wonder Woman, and then you end on Andre the Giant. <laughs> that is just such an intense four hours. <laughs> can, can How I is be... that supposed to be compelling to anyone? Like, <laughs> I want you to be in a state of complete emotional confusion at the end of your four hours with HBO Max. Anyway, I, the, it's just the thing that to me is like it's funny. I'm sure you know he's trying to demonstrate the breadth of the the service, but that's how they have to talk about it. That's that's the only move they have to get you over the hump of knowing about the service, going to download it on your phone, opening up a user account, giving it your credit card information, hopefully forgetting that you gave it your credit card information, and then incurring billing for the rest of your life. Like that's the business model they're in. I think we're going to see a lot of attempts to mitigate it by saying it's free or cheap with ads, or to market moments like Baby Yoda where you feel like you're left out if you're not in the mix. Here's what I want. I want, uh, this won't work because some of some of this, these shows are staying exclusive, like especially like Mandalorian, but I want a service that actually tracks what shows I'm watching and tells me if it would be cheaper for me to bail on all of my subscriptions and just buy seasons from like iTunes. That's yeah. what I want. But I, it's not possible anymore because a bunch of these shows are just going to be exclusive to the streaming platform. Yeah. it's. I keep on hoping that only bad shows will be exclusive. Because <laughs> I, I do like that idea of that buying media. I don't know. It's. It is it's like so. I was super planning. Uh, I, for, I I like I said, I wasn't going to get Disney Plus, but then I got it for free because I'm on Verizon. So I got yep. Disney Plus. I was not planning on paying any attention to Peacock, but they've got the Adventure Zone, which is like one of my favorite things ever to, that exists ever. So of course I'm going to pay for it and watch it, and of course I'm not going to watch ads. So I'm going to pay ten dollars a month, and it's going to be great. But uh, yeah, it. I, I do think that calculator, if that calculator could exist, I think it would be like, even if it was virtual, like let's pretend that you could buy these things on iTunes, you know, like you just pay $15 and you download a whole se season of television that you like. Uh, and then you don't have to watch tel like seven hours of television every night for the rest of your life. I think, mm -hmm. I do think you'd be saving money. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I really Here's got it. Here's the thing that I, here's how I feel about all of these shows using like their nostalgia bait shows to get you to subscribe. The personal story, I need a hobby and like I, I live in an apartment, so I can't make the hobby like, you know, fixing stuff around my house. So I'm like, what am I going to do? Uh, I, I could take work woodworking class or I don't know, maybe I'll be that guy that like builds like cool, like giant Lego kits. A lot of people do that. They get a lot of satisfaction out of that. Um, but every time you go to like Amazon.com and look at the Lego kit for the Millennium Falcon, which costs $800 and you scroll down, same thing with like the Aston Martin, or the Corvette or any of those like super complex kits. The photo of the person building the Lego kit is like a 45-year-old guy by himself. I'm like, oh, no. Nope, not doing that. I, nope, too cliche. And that's how I feel about like, oh, I have to subscribe to this thing because it's got my, you know, favorite show from, you know, 2008 or whatever. Like, it's just, you're better. Go watch something new. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, what's the line? Kill the past. Let yeah. the past go. Kill it if you have to. <laughs> Just forget that show ever existed. I forgot most shows in the past existed. I don't, it's yeah. fine. I, yeah, I think that nostalgia stuff is like interesting. I also think that there's so much new content that needs to be made for these services to persist that that inflection point will be super interesting to me. When HBO Max is not trying to sell you on the strength of it, the familiar names in its library, but it's actually trying to sell you on like the new teen comedies that HBO Max is going to... like. That is going to be an entire... That's why... It, the streaming war phrase is actually more apt 
they're going to have to spend a lot of marketing money to cut through the noise and get you to spend money and time over here. And that is, it is necessarily a fight, even if it ends up that half America subscribes to one collection and the other half subscribes to another collection and everyone makes money in the end. The fight for attention is going to be, I think, pretty, pretty bloodthirsty. Because the kids are going to be out there with their 5G PS4 switches. It's going to be amazing. Dieter, you want to talk about uh, some cell phones real quick before we go? Oh, yeah, real quick. Uh, so Samsung announced Unpacked, uh, their phone event for February 11th. We've got a few weeks before that happens so we can get into the rumors. But uh, XTA developers has basically gotten the goods on what to expect. Uh, the S20, um, there will be an S20 Plus, an S20 Ultra, which will be a spec machine. Uh, we're expecting 120 hertz re uh, refresh displays, which is the thing OnePlus is also promising to do. So expect every major Android phone to have that. And uh, they're adding a fourth camera, a macro camera, Samsung is, so, uh, which we'd uh, also seen on like their light phones. So uh, that's coming. There's going to be the Galaxy Z Flip. We'll get into more of the rumors later when we got more time, but just be aware that the, the Galaxy machine is spinning up. It's spinning up. I got to yeah. say, macro camera to me is like the, well, now we're just adding like niche functions. Like the, next that's, year, they're going to be like, this camera is made for birders. Yeah, bird bird watchers only. That's how I felt about wide angle at first, and now I love it. But wide angle, it, there's like a utility with other people in the room with wide angle. Yeah, like it's it it has like some. When I say social, like it has value if other people are around you. Mm -hmm. A macro lens has a very little value if you're in a room with other people. You're like. Stand very still. I'm going to get extremely close to your skin. No, you take, <laughs> you take bokeh pictures of, of your food. And your cat. Yeah, you can do that with a regular lens. All right, look, I love macro lenses. I'm excited to buy this phone just so I can take close-up pictures of subpixel layouts on the go. <laughs> That's what I do with a macro you lens. You really are in a glass house when you criticize macro lenses. <laughs> <laughs> they're uh, they're going to follow the trend that they started with the Note 10, and they're going to They'll be the first Galaxy S phone without a headphone jack. <sighs> Woof. Well, it was a good run, and now our mm -hmm. uh, headphones are computers, and they have software updates that ruin the noise canceling. Yeah. That's a thing that really just happened with the AirPods Pro, actually. Yep. It's great. I'm, I'm happy that everything is a computer now. Actually, the, the worst part of the software updates with the AirPods Pro is there's no way to, like, actively install it because it just sort of ambiently happens when they, Apple thinks the time is right. And that means there's no way to uninstall it. Yeah. It's just, like, you just got to wait. True conspiracy theory. No proof. Just a true conspiracy theory. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it. It's like irresponsible. If you're in your car, okay. just like pull over and be like, say to yourself quietly, I'm about to hear an irresponsible thing that I should immediately forget. Okay, you ready? <laughs> what if Apple launched it with extremely hardcore noise canceling? So people, because they knew people would compare that, but they knew it sounded kind of bad. And then after launch, they're like, we're going to flip it back to sounding good with the noise canceling that we believe in. Hmm. Why couldn't they just do both? I, I said it was irresponsible. Okay. That's my, that, there it is. I said it, I said it was irresponsible and wrong. Uh, but, you know, you think about that. What about <laughs> ad tracking at the headphone level? <laughs> do you think that's not going to happen? That's like already in Sony's <laughs> terms of service agreement. <laughs> like 100%. It's like we will send listening data back to our servers. <laughs> It's gross. Everything's gross. At this point, um, find a way to buy vinyl records in a bunker. <laughs> Paul and I are going to be working on our, our Pringle can mesh network. We'll talk to you again next week. <laughs> <laughs> With like a DVD box set of MacGyver. Computers aren't terrifying if you just think it's all really funny. That's the Vergecast. That's the show <laughs> that we make here. 
All right. That is, in fact, The Verge Hest. I'm happy to be back. We do have a bunch of interviews coming out. I'm excited for you to hear them. Please give us feedback on that stuff. You can tweet at me. I'm Matt Reckless. Dieter's at Backlon. Paul's at Future Paul. Dieter, tell them about your newsletter. It's a newsletter. You can find it at theverge.com slash newsletter. It's called Processor. It's about computers. Defined broadly. <laughs> Defined broadly. That's the most Dieter like asterisk on like the, <laughs> the inherent joke of about computers. Uh, that's it. Rock and roll. Paul. Promo code. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.